I'm Julie. And this is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast. Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface. Is this one too much reality? Oh, no. It's a lot of difficult reality. It's just a lot of reality. (laughs) But it's good reality. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. A Song for Nagasaki by, is it Paul Glenn? Mm-hmm. I don't have the cover in front of me. Paul oh, yeah. Glenn. Yeah. And yeah, what a book this was. Yeah, this, the subtitle says, Scientist, Convert, and Survivor of the Atomic Bomb. Mm. And this Indeed. book, I don't even remember why I first got it, but I got it a while ago. It's so good. Oh, it is. It's amazing. Published by Ignatius Press. Mm. Um, okay. But wow. Yeah. I was blown away by it. Yeah, this is this is really amazing. It probably helps if you finish it during Holy Week like we did. <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> yeah, it was Good Friday is when I finished it. And it's, oh, it's a terrific Holy Week book. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good time I to read it. finished it, I think, on Holy Monday. Mm-hmm. And um, he was, Takashi Nagai was in the back of my mind all week. He is um, such a man for our time, I think. Mm. And he's not well known now the way he was because his story is so inspirational. You know, they made, he wrote a book called The Bells of Nagasaki and that got turned into a movie, so I think a lot of people had seen that. And then there was a song from the movie that I think people had heard. And so um, now, though, of course, a lot of that has been forgotten. Which is a shame. Yeah. Well, and this book is uh, really good because in addition to telling his life story, it also tells the story of Christianity in Japan. And it's interwoven as we follow through his life and see what's going on. They'll stop and explain, well, in Nagasaki, here's why they had a cathedral and here's why this is like this. Hmm. And um, it's really well done, I think, in that way. You you always have the context you need and it's, it's a good, rich context without being too much. Yeah, I I agree with that. Um, yeah, and I really appreciated the the start. You know, the opening of the book really does go into a lot of history, like mm-hmm. you said, of Christianity in Japan. Um, even took a dig at uh, that <laughs> James Clavell on his way through, <laughs> which was great. Yeah, yeah, unlike Shogun, which I was like, oh, okay, I thought yeah. I, I believed that, but never mind. Um, <laughs> That's all right, yeah. because now we'll take digs at the movie Silence That's right. on our way through. Well, we won't. But, <laughs> but reading this book, you think about the movie Silence, and you realize how much that movie is formed by our times mm. and not the actual historical time that it purports yeah. to show. That's a good point. I remember sending you a note saying, I need to rewatch that movie now. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I just watched it maybe last year because my somebody from my Catholic Women's Book Club had chosen it. Hmm. I remember having the same argument with someone else about stepping on that tile that I had with you on the podcast <laughs> when we talked about it. I remember, I, yeah. I won then too. So <laughs> <laughs> very good. <laughs> but uh yeah, this but so you find out about the hidden Catholics or Christians, you find out about all kinds of things, and a, a lot about also just Japanese culture. So you really understand the mindset that people had 
because his life um, takes you through World War One and World War Two, and then afterward. So you need a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah, it reminded me a lot of us talking a lot about, you know, when we do an Indian movie, you know, how mm-hmm. we're, you know, if you understand their culture, you understand more of what is being said. So it just reminded me of that, you know, as we were going through these first chapters. And I was like, yeah, this right. is really interesting. Yeah, and Paul Glenn, Paul Glenn, I'm sorry, I think I swallowed that uh, before. He did a really good job of describing things really well so that you felt like you were there, but without feeling as if he was taking liberties with it. And we can know some of this because Takashi Nagai himself wrote, oh my gosh, at least 10 books. And um, I've read the one that he wrote called The Bells of Nagasaki, Mm. which starts... um, after the bombing of Nagasaki and goes on from there. Yeah. And it's this, the book that Paul Glenn wrote generally followed really closely in what he was talking about. So that's good. Yeah. That's good to know. But, um, that, that's a book that I really, really want to read and it's hard to find. I poked around for it, but, uh, it's not I know being published right now. So I don't understand why it's not in print. Yeah. And it came out maybe last in like nineteen ninety four, and you look to try to find a copy, and it's you know two hundred and fifty dollars. <laughs> and I'm thinking, thank goodness my library has a copy of it. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. so I shall I tell yeah, just a little do. bit about yeah. who is Takashi Nagai? Takashi Nagai, yeah. um, a young Japanese man who was very much a patriot, like you know anybody would be, and especially in Japan with the culture being what it was. And um, he believed in his parents were firmly dedicated to Shinto, but his father uh, and mother wanted him to have a really good education and all this. So they sent him off to school where they promptly said, here's what we can prove scientifically speaking. And he soon was only believing that science held the key to the future of the human race. And he was a real humanist, you know, humans can do anything. And not in a, you know, bad way, just this was, you know, the 1920s. And he was in med- he was eventually in medical school and everything. And this was what everybody believed. And Japan was trying to become a modern nation. So this was really being pushed everywhere. And everyone was going, yeah, why wouldn't we do this? And um, he was an atheist. And, um, and he also believed that the spirit of Japan would improve his nation's future. So hewing to the traditional values of Japan while modernizing it. And at the same time, though, when he was in Nagasaki, going to go to the university, um, he was, it's really close to the cathedral, (laughs) Nagasaki Cathedral, which had something like 5,000 people attending it. Yeah. And it just drove him crazy because he's like, oh, it's so backwards. Oh, my gosh, <laughs> superstitions and everything. But he had also picked up a book by Blaise Pascal, De Pensée. And um, he was occasionally reading that because he was really interested in somebody who could be a scientist and a poet. This fit in really well with the way Japanese people thought about how you should be well-rounded. But also, of course, Blaise Pascal was Catholic. So he would talk about finding God, and he's the one who had the famous bet, right? Just act like you believe in God for a yes, year, right. even if you yep. don't. 
And um, it doesn't ever say anything about taking him up on that, but he had this book on him and he occasionally would dip into it and kind of ponder the questions, which were the big questions of life. And then he got a telegram that said his mother was dying. And I'm just, it's early, even though I'm just summing up, but I want to read this paragraph okay? because this changed his life. He said, I rushed to her bedside. She was still breathing. She looked fixedly at me, and that's how the end came. My mother, in that last penetrating gaze, knocked down the ideological framework I had constructed. This woman, who had brought me into the world and reared me, this woman who had never once let up in her love for me, in the very last moments of her life, spoke clearly to me. Her eyes spoke to mine, and with finality, saying, your mother now takes leave in death, but her living spirit will be beside her little one, Takashi. I, who was so sure that there was no such thing as a spirit, was now told otherwise, and I could not but believe. My mother's eyes told me that the human spirit lives on after death. All this was by way of an intuition, an intuition carrying conviction. So he was knocked over by that, and then he was heartbroken as he went back, and he picked up the pensée and started reading it, and that really connected everything for him in a way that made him want to at least see why do Catholics think what they think. So he got a room boarding with a family that lived near the cathedral because he wanted to see what Catholics were like as they lived their lives and their faith. And that was the big turning point for him because he didn't, you know, immediately convert or anything, but it shows his open mind. It shows the fact that he was always seeking the truth. And this I find to be one of the most attractive qualities that he had. He would hear things that were said and he would evaluate them against what he knew and look for how you could prove yes or no. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That we all would do that, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right, I mean, right. it's just his openness. It's like, oh, here I am presented with something real, and I need to consider that rather than putting it in your file cabinet, which is of your known, you know, what box does this go in that fits my <laughs> worldview I have right now? Yes. You know? Right. Instead of saying, well, I was just really upset, and she had a, this look in her eyes, I'll forget about it. Mm-hmm. He took it seriously. Yeah. Right. And um, so after that, he wound up uh, converting, and um, although not for a while, but he at that time, what we wind up is watching him go through going off to military service, getting married, becoming an actual doctor, winding up specializing in X-rays, radiology, because there was nobody else to do it, and he kind of got stuck with it, and then kind of fell in love with it. And I forget, until I was reading this, I tend to forget how important x-rays are. If you didn't have any x-rays, you couldn't tell if somebody had tuberculosis or worms or mm. you know, something else wrong with them. And so this was one of the newest life-saving devices around. And um, that also formed his personality. And then the bomb fell on Nagasaki. Gosh. And I don't want to. I don't want to say I don't want to spoil it. I, you know, but it's the thing of we all know the bomb fell on Nagasaki. Nagasaki University and hospital were fairly close to where it fell. He wound up uh, getting trapped under stuff. I mean, all these people were really hurt. Many killed, of course. But anybody from the medical staff who was left, he kind of rallied them out of their shock, and they started rescuing people. 
And then after they were rescued, rescued everybody they could find, they said, well, gosh, there must be people who went to the hills nearby. We probably better go out there and start helping to treat people too. And so they did. I mean, here they are. They've been exposed to all this gamma radiation or whatever it is. They go off doing this because, you know, he was organizing them. And he wound up for the city kind of doing the same thing because when he came back, like everyone, his life was completely different. Hmm. And he'd already been suffering from x-ray exposure. Yeah, he, would, this, he, would, he was declared sick before the bomb even landed. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and um, he then uh, was dealing with that. But at the same time, it's really extraordinary. His Christian optimism and the way he would in- look at things and not allow himself to dwell on the bad, but would look at it and go, but I have to remember, here's the good that comes out of this thing. Mm-hmm. And be really realistic and kind of summing up what's the truth. He wound up being such a force for optimism and um, that there would be a future, that everything would be okay, that the whole city wound up having a different personality than, say, Hiroshima, hmm. which um, in the in the book, the author says, if you've ever been on Hiroshima on, you know, whatever the anniversary is of dropping the bomb, it's very bitter and angry and, you know, pretty much what you'd expect. And he goes, but if you're in Nagasaki, on their anniversary, it's very uh, peaceful, sorrowful, melancholy, but kind of resigned to this This was our fate. Mm, yeah. And he goes, and the difference is Takashi Nagai. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, what an impact so, he had. Yeah, so I kind of gave a huge overview of the book, but do not let that stop you from reading it, because there's tons of details in there that, I didn't get to. No, that, that yeah, and that's what's great. Everything in this book. But yeah, really just him as this example of optimism. You know, in the face of what he went through, um it's it's extremely humbling to read. Oh yeah. And it it certainly makes my problems seem practically ridiculous. <laughs> the <laughs> stuff that I worry about on a day-to-day basis. I mean, you know, talk about a holy week, you know. Oh, Here's yeah. Jesus, you know, marching to Calvary and and uh, <clears throat> my petty worries. Right. Um, they're just pale in comparison. I mean, it's just not even close. You know, I'm blessed beyond belief. But, um, you know, and that's the way Takashi Nagai was, too. Yeah, because he really, truly believed. And he, every time he kind of started to go off the rails, like we all do he would turn to his faith and it would give him peace to be able to come back and keep going forward and, and help others mm. with their faith. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, helping others was his thing. I mean, that's that's what he did his entire life mm-hmm. um, in so many different ways. Yeah, they called him, <clears throat> his nickname in Nagasaki was the Saint of Yurakami. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so they, they viewed him as that anyway, or even back yeah. then, that's something. Yeah. Yeah. And he, uh, he's not a saint in the Catholic church yet. I hope. I know. <laughs> he's, he's on the way though. He's servant of God. 
Yeah. Okay, so let's see. Servant of God. There's. I had to look this up. There are four steps to becoming a saint. Servant of God is the first step. This is when your life and works are being investigated to consider official recognition as a saint. And mm. then there's, um, let's see, venerable. It says, upon a decree of heroism or martyrdom by the honored. So I guess that's just you know, like your super, super amazing, great. I feel like he'll be venerable in no yeah. time. Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah. yeah, then be- beatification with the title of blessed. And beatification is the recognition that the deceased person is in heaven and can intercede on the behalf of individuals. Mm-hmm. Is that different from having a miracle or is that after you no, have one miracle? Um, the, my definition here says at the very end of the beatification, the last sentence is a miracle attributed to the person's intercession must be proved. Okay. That's what I mm-hmm. thought it was one miracle. And yeah. then after you've had another miracle that seals the deal. Right. And canonization. Then then you're canonized and you're a full-on saint. That's right. And then, according to Joe Walton's story, <laughs> you get lots of <laughs> prayers coming at you. That's right. St. <laughs> Zenobius, is That's that right. it? That's right, yep. Yep. <laughs> right. So good, yep. Yeah. But, uh, but cool. Because I think Dorothy yep. Day is also a servant of God mm-hmm. and um, various people like that. Yeah. Where, you know, they're, they're really great. And recognized as that, and people would like their causes put forward for uh, canonization. Yeah. yeah. So. If he hasn't shown heroic virtue, I don't know what that is. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. yeah. So, I know people might feel like I've told spoilers. As I said, I really haven't. Um, <laughs> well, it's hard so to have spoilers go. in a piece of nonfiction. It's like... Oh, that's true. Yeah, read away. Um yeah, before we go forward, you know, I, I was floored by this book. It was it was not a, it was very well written. It was really absorbing, but um, I was reading the most amazing things. You know, um, j- right. just it was eye opening. In again, you know, we say this optimism, but there were just these little you know things that he did in action. And things mm-hmm. that he was thinking in in relation to the what did you call it the I, I know it's Pascal but you pronounce it in a certain way Ponce Ponce yes yeah <laughs> by <laughs> Ponce you know so um, the stuff that he was reading in there and him you know working through that in his head I, I thought that was just great oh yeah where um, he'd look at it and he re- since he really admired the culture the Japanese culture so much and. He would have studied some of their great spiritual figures. Yeah. And then he'd look at, I loved that Midori, who's the daughter of the household where he was staying, and he wound up marrying her because we're now <laughs> spoiling everything <laughs> yeah. as if it was in doubt when you're reading mm-hmm. the book. But still, um, you, uh, he, she had sent him overseas because in World War II, he was in. China or wherever fighting and um, a catechism and he wasn't Catholic or anything but 
they finally they had to inspect it and they finally went, oh, looks like a bunch of Catholic rules and superstition, <laughs> so go for it, you know. And he's reading it going, it's one of those basic ones like why why were you, why did God make you, you know, so I can know him, love him and be with him, whatever. And he's reading this going, some of these questions are the basic questions that man has always asked. Hmm. And he would think about how these notable figures had answered them and considered them and then think about the answer that he was being given in the catechism. So he was really prompting a lot of deep thought. Yeah. Yeah. And he was finding in it some uh, Japanese stuff or stuff that reminded him of that. Mm -hmm. Like I just highlighted, it said, um, you know, that Pascal wrote, man is a thinking reed. And it says the sentence had a Japanese ring to it. It was like something a Buddhist priest might say. Yes. Um, yeah, and he was, you know, because he had his background that he brought with him, like we all do. Mm-hmm. And he was like, hmm, you know, here's something that I understand. <laughs> and it, it sort of pulled him along. And, um, yeah, yeah, I love that. Well, yeah, and it's it's the universality of Catholicism. It's for everyone. Right, yeah. And it's interesting to see that it took a French thinker <laughs> and believer to resonate so yeah. much with the Japanese scientist. That's right. Traces of the one reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, you know, him thinking about reason. Um, I really found that fascinating too. Um, there's, there's a piece here. Uh, there are two false attitudes to reason, according to Pascal. One is overconfidence in reason, which often leads to barren skepticism. And the other is resignation to stupidity coming from laziness or disinterest. <laughs> and then it says, truth is reached by avoiding these two pitfalls. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, this other piece, you know, he says, unlike the rational truths of science, the higher truths are seen by the eyes of the heart. That expression was familiar to Nagai from Buddhism, you know, so another piece, right? Many images of Buddha show a jewel in his forehead representing the eye of the heart, which sees beyond mere appearances. I did love that because Mm -hmm. I've read this book before, but a long time ago, so I didn't remember some of these things. I thought, that's why that's there. I have. That uh, makes so much sense. I have a book by um, Peter Kreeft. That I haven't read mm. yet, but it's on my shelf, and it's called uh, um, Christianity for Pagans, I think. Oh, <clears throat> have you heard of that? But no, it's him. I it's haven't. him going through the the this book. The the again, Ponce, <laughs> Pense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I, I clearly really? pronounce it Pensies. So. <laughs> oh yeah, well that's just the French. But I do know I, how I to. I so very know that that's not that right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's called Christianity for Pagans. Oh, how interesting. Um, yeah, Christianity actually for modern pagans. Okay, um, that's what it's called. Even more interesting. Yes. Yep, and it's Pascal's Pense. Yep. <clears throat> so. Oh, I see it. Yeah. Yep. That is interesting. This has made me uh, bump that thing up on my list. Yeah. Totally. I'm going to get the Kindle sample. So, yeah. So, but those things, the the amazing thing is that it led to action, right? You know, so the guy not only 
starts to believe, but then he starts to act, which is what believers should be doing, right? <clears throat> you know, right. these things, you know, we talk about works and um, faith and works, right? But the, I think the proper way to look at that is that when you have faith, the works come. It, it's You're not doing the works to be saved. It's like you want to do the works because you have faith. So these these things are just outpouring out of him. And it's it just right, like, it, yeah, like a river. <laughs> yeah, you know? it changes... Well, because it changes how you see the world. Yeah. And if you're changing how you see and think about everything, of course it changes how you act. Right. Yeah, and I, I think a lot of intellectuals and um, people that think about stuff, I'm not going to call myself an intellectual, but <laughs> I think that people, myself included, it, it, you know, you think a lot about this stuff, but... Sometimes there's a little bit of a distance, you know, but for him, it was all internalized and, and then externalized through action, you know, and I think that's a lesson that this teaches me too. You know, it's like, um, sometimes you can dwell on things. Um, and then, you know, this, you know, those, those two extremes that he was just talking about, you can't live there. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta move forward. And, right. uh, in my life, I, you know, before I really became active and really believed, I really was frozen, you know, and I can see that now that, mm-hmm. you know, jumping around in religions and, <clears throat> you know, just kind of looking at them and saying, yeah, that's interesting. And sort of this cold intellectualism where, you know, you, you kind of get this satisfaction and understanding and, but that's not enough, you know? The, the right. understanding should lead to action. And only in, right. when I started to delve, that's when things got deeper, you know, and mm-hmm. um, I would even say more interesting, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Um, which is a, you know, um, I don't know, paradox maybe, you know, <laughs> so depth instead of breadth, I guess. But it, it became, it changed everything. I guess that's my point. It changed everything. Yeah. Well, and for me... Um I really related to Takashi Nagai, not in exactly the details, of course, but, you know, the fact that he was always kind of, uh, once he saw that this other stuff was here, you know, he had the experience with his mother and went, whoa, Hmm. I have to look into this more. And then this is the person who's my guide is this French Catholic. I better look at what is that, what is Catholicism or Christianity even mean Mm -hmm. and so he just started going where's the truth how can i find it and then as you say once he found it he started acting on it and that is um very much my experience yeah yeah you know that's Mm -hmm. just more who i am in that way Mm. um i'd like to think i could be as heroic as him (laughs) i feel like that's a real stretch (laughs) Uh, and i hope i never have to i would like to to think that too you know yeah. yeah, but he's just such an incredible example, you know, and this is what a saint is, you know, this is somebody yeah. who inspires and somebody who embodies, you know, somebody that's worthy well, of veneration, you know. I have to say, because even when, I, like, the only thing I noticed in reading this book versus once I read The Bells of Nagasaki is that um, Paul Glenn kind of soft-pedaled the way that Takashi Nagai felt after Japan surrendered. Mm. I mean, he said everybody felt awful about it. How could, how could they surrender? Uh Um, 
it wasn't expressed in the way that he expressed it in the Bells of Nagasaki, uh, where he cried for 20 minutes solid. Mm. It was like a punch in the gut. Yeah. And I and when I read that, and I thought, I understand. It, it wasn't that important to the book it, to know it in that level. But it's probably also one of those things that when uh, The Bells of Nagasaki was coming out, uh, Japan was under American governmental rule, and it had to be approved by the censors. And I'm sure that's one of the things where they're like, eh, he better say he's really sorry. Oh, okay, here it is over here. <laughs> oh, man. But um, because it really hurt, and he had a really hard time with it, all, the, all of the scientists did. And I understood that once I, it made me stop and think, what would happen if America surrendered? Even if you're somebody who says, well, we shouldn't have been in that war and whatever, blah, 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 blah. I mean, come on, that's your whole identity. Mm. Yeah. But, yeah. And them not knowing what the future held. Oh, my gosh. Um, yes. What are the Americans going to do? Yeah. What is this radiation going to do? Everything. And everything's awful. And his wife had just been incinerated because their house was right next to the cathedral, all this stuff. And everybody'd lost people. I mean, it was devastating. And so um, that would just be the last drop. But the great thing is, is in his book, and of course in this book, it, it shows that once he had a chance to kind of get it over with and get a hold of himself and start really thinking about it, he's like, it doesn't even matter how I feel. Of course we had to surrender. We brought it on ourselves. Mm. You know, he was always very honest about where does the fault come from. And so one of the things he did that um, really upset a lot of people at the time was after the cathedral was rebuilt, he was asked to give the, what was not a homily, but an address when it opened. And he had really thought a lot about it. And he said that in Nagasaki, the whole city should be proud that they were picked to be bombed. <laughs> And you can imagine that went over like a lead balloon. Yeah. But then he, ex of course, explains that, you know, if you're Christian, what is the greatest thing you can do is sacrifice yourself for others. This is the example of Jesus. And he goes, we were the example that was set so that this wouldn't happen again. So we should be proud to be the ones who were thought good enough or, you know, big enough to be used to show everybody, here's what you don't do. We're the Holocaust. And um, that's the thing, I think, that attitude, once they kind of absorbed it, which goes along with his Christianity, is kind of what made Nagasaki, when I was talking about the differences between Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and how they feel about being bombed, that's why there's a distinct difference. Yeah. And, and he said, he goes, we earned it. He's like... It's not like we were doing nothing and they just picked us to bomb. Our country was an aggressor. We killed so many people. And he had seen so much suffering in World War One and World War II when he was sent over to China that he was just devastated by what their country was doing and said, how can I be proud to be Japanese when I'm looking at this and knowing that we're the aggressors here? Hmm. Mm -hmm. So all of that, of course, went together. As you said, you bring yourself with you. Yeah. But it was such a sterling example of how do you shift the way you're thinking to really get God's point of view on it. And then what does that mean for how you live and act and believe? Mm. 
Yeah, he said, um, yeah, the Christian flock of Nagasaki was true to the faith through three centuries of persecution. During the recent war, it prayed ceaselessly for a lasting peace. Here was the one pure lamb that had to be sacrificed as Hansai on his altar so that many millions of lives might be saved. Yeah. Boy. I forgot. That's beautiful. Yeah, it is beautiful. And it's, again, humbling is the word that comes to mind. Mm -hmm. Um, It's humbling to think that, you know, we dropped that over there. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. You know, but... um, but yeah, you know, here it says, you know, so that many millions of lives might be saved. I mean, it it stopped everything, right? It's, I, I don't know. Well, it's so hard to yeah. even think about. Well, the, yeah, because two things come to mind. One is when he's saying here was the pure lamb, and I'd forgotten his terminology. It's so beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Because the bomb wasn't supposed to be dropped on the cathedral. Mm-hmm. Due to the weather and something else, they wound up being a little off target. But they went, "Oh, we can see this, and we have to do this yeah, thing and get out of here." So we'll that just wasn't drop even it. the number one city; it was number two. Uh-uh. Oh, that's yeah, right. It was number two, and when they got to the city, they couldn't drop it where they were going to drop it. They had to drop it where it dropped, right? Because they and were running said, out of fuel. Yeah, yeah. And he he said, "I don't think that was a mistake. I think that was God." Hmm offering this we're the sacrifice yeah and then um let's see what was the other thing so it turns out there was one thing i could think of because i (laughs) forgot the other one (laughs) oh i know when you said we dropped it we did that yeah but it's funny because we wound up talking about this book at dinner before you know we started recording uh my family because my mom is reading a book about okinawa Hmm. and she said so many people died she said, it's just awful to read about. She loves to read these just awful books like this. And I'm like, why are you reading it? Oh, mm-hmm. it's so interesting. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, great. But so we were talking about how many lives and how bad the fighting in the Pacific was. And I was remembering, um, I had looked through the other book that Paul Glenn wrote that I've read, which I highly recommend is, um, let's see, it's called, I think, Satoko. Let's see. Story of a rag picker or something. Mm, Yeah. It is called The Smile of a Rag Picker. That's it. And it's also about a very saintly person who, um, I'm going to reread it now after this, but I I was leafing through it, looking at it, and uh, she, at one point, it's World War II, and they know the Americans are coming, or the Allies are coming, and she's practicing with her pointed stick, and you know, doing the mm-hmm. thrusts and lunges that they're going to do when they go down to hold the Americans off. And um, I'm thinking, it's not that our soldiers would have come out and killed a bunch of old women and everything, but you know, there would have been soldiers in there with them, mm. Japanese soldiers. It would have been a bloodbath either way. And uh, fighting your way in through the islands, the occupied islands, would have just been awful for everyone. And you can't, you know, say, oh, it's better to do this than that. They made the choice they made, and that's why they made that choice, thinking of that. <clears throat> yeah, um, yeah. But his take on it is the take that makes you realize, oh, there could be something bigger going on here. Yeah. Yeah, and you had to, you know, the Americans definitely knew, or we Americans definitely knew, that um, the emperor was not going to give up. He wasn't going to surrender. He wasn't going to stop the war. It wasn't the emperor. 
It was the militarists. The militarists. Okay, but it wasn't the emperor the one that they thought was um, pretty much a god? He was divine in some way. Right. And isn't it the emperor who uh, said, we're going to surrender? But do you remember in the book where they said the emperor had basically just been um, powerless his Mm -hmm. whole life? Ever since he was young, he'd been raised to be told, you tell, you say what we tell you. Yeah. Because his father had been so hard to handle and mm. gotten him into so much trouble. So his whole life, he'd really been a, a uh, figurehead. Yeah. And he didn't want to attack Pearl Harbor, and they did it anyway, because he was an idiot, they said. Hmm. And they, so this was all the military running everything. So it's like the time, in a sense, I guess, it's kind of like the time of the Shoguns again, but modern. And so the emperor wanted to give up way before they attacked Hiroshima, according to this book anyway. And definitely after they attacked Hiroshima, he's like, that's it. And they went, no, no, no. We we can still come out of it. And after Nagasaki was attacked, he's like, forget this. He didn't ask anyone's permission. He went and got on the radio and said, that's it. We give right. up. Yeah. Yep. So... It was it was the people in charge, but it wasn't the emperor. Which so I'm was the, the militarists. Then we're not going to give up. Yeah, but I remember right. reading something um, about you know Nagai thinking you know, there's no way we're going to give up because right. of the divineness of the emperor. You know, right. I thought that was the reason that he gave, and that's probably the reasons that the militarists were giving then. Yeah, I think yeah. so. And the yeah. common man would think that way. Mm-hmm. Right. And he understood that, of course, quite well. Right. Nagai. Yeah, and then the yeah. emperor did get on the radio, and uh, didn't he kind of travel around too? And like um, something that he had never or wouldn't be allowed yes. to do or didn't do, he started to go right. around and public appearances. Public appearances, yeah. Showing I'm a man, mm-hmm. not divine. Yeah. Which I have a feeling was also part of the Americans or the Allies going, um, now. This is going to happen. <laughs> I am pretty proud of how we treated them after all was said mm-hmm. and done. I thought, I think that's something to be pretty proud of. Yeah. And Germany too. And of course we had to learn from world war one where nobody was that nice. And you know, there's, there's no point in that really, if you yeah. can afford it and we could afford it. Right. So. Yeah. Um, Amazing. Difficult also- stuff. Yep. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> and what a read it was, I could say. Oh, my goodness. Um, yeah, like, uh, so he had a vision, right? He had a vision yeah. that this was going to happen. So he said, we got to get the kids out of here. And his wife said, well, I don't want to leave you. So they brought the kids to the grandparents, I believe, in the hills. Mm-hmm. And then uh, she returned. Well, they both returned. So, uh, Nagai and his wife, um, what was her name again? Midori? Midori, right. Is it Midori? Midora, Midori, yeah. So, yeah, Midori. Yeah. And then, um, yeah, there's this incredible scene where he says, okay, I've got to go to work. And he leaves the house, but then he has to go back to get his lunch, I think. I can't remember why he went back. Yeah, that was it. And then, uh, Caesar just crying, which, um, I don't suppose a, a Japanese wife, at least at the time, would cry in front of her husband um, simply because she was the strength there. I mean, you know, showing strength and 
she's not going to show him that that emotion, you know, but he he saw it and um then he went to work after that and then the bomb was dropped at that time. Incredibly powerful stuff. Mm-hmm. Um but just the scene, the whole the whole scene, you know, and and I'm wondering in the bells of Nagasaki, does he go through that moment? Is that you said that's you know, how it I starts? Didn't... I didn't have a chance to reread it yeah. because I just got it a couple of days ago from the library. So wow. I had to request it and it took a while. So, yeah. Um, Incredible. But, yep. but he probably does because, well, if not, then right after, I think he picks up after the attack. Hmm. So it would have been him finding her body and the melted rosary oh in her hand. Oh my goodness. Because <laughs> she would have been saying, the, she was saying the rosary when yeah. the bomb dropped. And I'm just like, Oh, man. Oh, geez. That's just tough. Yeah. She was an incredible person. Um, oh, man. You know, she just, even before all of that, she was something else, too. Um, you know, the support she gave him, and, um, you know, he was doing this important work, and she was really supportive. She'd read his papers, even though she said she didn't <laughs> understand them. <laughs> right. Um, well, or before they got married, he said, I have to tell you, I'm doing this work that, you know, people are known to die from radiation poisoning. So this could be bad. And she's like, oh, I don't care. That's fine. Yeah. You know. Wow. <laughs> but she also prayed him into the faith, essentially. I mean, because living in that environment and then becoming attracted to her. Of course, that was powerful. But then when he went away as a medical doctor drafted into the army, she was praying for him the whole time, every day at the cathedral while Mm. he was gone. She's the one who sent him the catechism, you know. And that was before they declared themselves. Each one was interested, but they hadn't said anything to the other. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, truly a holy and heroic woman, too. Yeah, for sure. The thing that got me um, was, I mean, there were, there were some great times in this book. I mean, great moments in this book. But uh, when he died, he had he had gotten, was it a prize or a big article he sold? Anyway, he got a big sum of money. And he said, well, I'm not going to keep it. This is after the war and all this stuff. And everything was still devastated. And he said, well, I'm not going to keep it for myself. I'm going to put it towards rebuilding the cathedral. We really need this. And so he couldn't do any digging himself, but he went with, you know, a little team of people to see if they could find the bells of Nagasaki. Mm -hmm. And they found them buried under all this debris, but they still were intact. And they would still ring. Mm. And um, as I was saying earlier, you know, he was so inspirational to everyone that um, when he died, it was a huge funeral. And um, they said (laughs) they had just finished with doing all these things like reading an hour and a half's worth of messages about him and um, had sprinkled holy water on the coffin and they had just put it back in the server when it says, by that miracle of Japanese timing, the clock hands moved to 12 noon. The Angelus boomed out, rung by Yamada-san, the friend who had gone with the guy to dig up the very same bell on Christmas Eve, 1945. On that night, it had been a lonely bell, 
but today a symphony of bells in church steeples and Buddhist temples answered in a citywide chorus. Factory whistles and the horns and sirens on every boat in Nagasaki Bay were sounded. The city stopped for a minute of silence in honor of its foremost citizen, the poor man of Nyokoto. In nearby Yama, oh, Yamazato's primary school, where the dying children and teachers had cried for water on that day, the children, uh, sorry, the classrooms fell silent. As the angelus notes died away, children broke into sobbing, and teachers' eyes watered. A great friend had passed from them. And I, when I was reading that, I was crying. Mm. You know, yeah, the effect he had on the city. Mm. Yeah, that's beautiful. Something else I saw in here that I had marked is um, he didn't let himself get dragged into bitterness and resentment. For example, against the Americans. You know, mm-hmm, he mm-hmm. knew he knew how it worked. Yeah, and um, and he knew what they had done. So, um, and it also said there were things like he never regarded the discovery of atomic energy as the fatal opening of a Pandora's box. Mm. And you don't often hear that about things from that time period, especially after the bomb has fallen. It says he viewed the whole universe as good and saw atomic (laughs) energy as one dimension of its magnificent dynamism. Atomic energy brought the sun's light and warmth to the earth, for instance. Our remote ancestors used their intelligence to wrest liquid fire from flint and sticks. Atomic energy was a providential breakthrough at a time when the days of the world's oil resources were numbered. <laughs> and so, and then it's like, well, of course you have to be responsible, like you are with fire, electricity, and all that kind of thing. So, um, he was very open-minded and even-handed about how he thought about stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, incredible thing to read here in 2023, you know, <laughs> we're worried about pollution and all this other stuff. And the solution is atomic energy. <laughs> I mean, I know we, it. it It solves all these problems, you know, but, I know. Um, but yeah. Man, that's my husband talks mm. about that all the time. Oh, it's just, yeah. Yeah. I guess fusion, if they ever figure that out would be the key because, well. you know, that'll, that'll you know, the, the byproduct of that is helium and we can handle that. Right. <laughs> it's not going to hurt anybody. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. um, but yeah, it's, um, yeah. Nuclear energy is something that, um, we're either going to need to do a lot of, or it's just going to continue. Mm-hmm. If we had been doing that, you know, all the way through the seventies and stuff, it would be, we'd be a lot better off right now as far as the environment. Well, I know. And the problem is you have some things like, um, a couple of bad incidents that are not very well reported, coupled with some movies like Silkwood, <laughs> and the public's mind is poisoned, and that's it. Yeah, it absolutely is. Yeah, it's like Three, so, three Mile Island, you know. That's it. Nobody, three Mile Island. I was nobody trying got to remember. Hurt at three Mile Island. Nobody. Right. <laughs> so and anyway, I was thinking I don't of know. Love Canal and went, oh, no, wait, that was pollution. That we was, also cleaned yeah, a lot that of was that chemicals, too. I think. Yeah. It's like the, all that stuff at the same time. Right. Um, so one of my favorite bits was the um, they're all up in the hills helping everybody, and um, these pamphlets are dropped and <laughs> from the Americans overhead. Mm. And he takes a leaflet to this great scientist who's you know lying on the ground just in great pain. Who reads it and he says, he thinks, and then it says he starts going, 
ha, how did they make this bomb? What did they do to get it going? And, you know, it says they proposed all the, the pre-war front runners. Who, who made the breakthrough? Was it Einstein, <laughs> Fermi, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, then, and then they said, well, how did they do it? They could have had fission because that would have taken up too much room. It had to split the atom. Ooh, and they're all just talking and talking and talking. And I'm like, I just love them. Mm. Just this is who they are. Yeah. You know, just like, mm. oh, what does that mean? And it's just carrying them away imaginatively. Yeah. Um, yeah. You wow. know. Yeah. Because it, it, it is, it is such an incredible gift, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's used right, you know, it's, it's just like everything else, isn't it? You know, yeah. it's, you know, God gives us these things and, uh, we, we use it incorrectly. You know, we, we come up with these things to use it for. I mean, you can say that about just about everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. But what an incredible gift it is to, um, I mean, all that energy, um, mm-hmm. it's, it's an incredible thing really. But yeah, but I, I, was, I shared their enthusiasm for her. Well, that's the thing. But I was also just blown away by the fact that they're scientists. Yeah. So what they're interested in more than anything is how did this yeah, work? How did they oh, my gosh. Yeah. Here's this knowledge that we didn't even have. Ooh, <laughs> we, I know we were working on it, but they actually cracked it. Hmm. <laughs> you know, was it Einstein? Was it, I wonder if they did it like this. No, no, it couldn't have been that. So the very fact that it was in a plane and dropped on the city and everything, they're factoring all this stuff in. And and the guy was saying, you know, here we are in the middle of this devastation, but we were just as excited as school children talking about all this. Mm. Wow. So I just thought, um, I just kind of <clears throat> loved that, that. Yeah, I you love know. it too. Yeah. That's great. And, and in that same environment... In that same environment, we have saints and prayers, and um, you know, th- th- it's just incredible. I mean, this is this is like what the world is. This is the one reality. Um, right. You know, like we, you think about, you know, right after the bomb fell, one of the things that happened to Nagai was he severed an artery in his temple, and blood was just shooting everywhere. You know, and they put a bandage on it, but it never stopped bleeding. And then they he gets to a point where he's got lost so much blood that he's slipping in and out of a coma. And, um, you know, he could hear prayers in his son's voice. Right. And then Mm -hmm. I'm looking at it right here and it says, um, uh, he heard a woman's voice speaking reassuringly. Ah, that's grand. This is water from our lady's grotto at Hangochi monastery. She murmured gently and her words evoked a very clear image of the Lord's grotto in the encouraging face of Mary, the mother of God. The guy continued, I heard how I don't know, but I alone heard it and heard it clearly, a voice telling me to ask Father Maximilian Colby to pray for me. I did as I was told, begging Father Colby's prayers. Then I turned to Christ and said, Lord, I leave myself in your divine hands. And then Nurse Morita, who had been pressing the broken artery, suddenly faced Dr. Tomita and said, The bleeding has stopped. The large wound which had resisted medication had healed without medical help. Awesome. Did not even leave a scar. That's incredible. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that was fascinating is I, when I read this book first, I didn't really have Maximilian Kolbe on my radar. Mm Mm-hmm. Now I've read a lot about him, and I remember reading this going, oh, no, 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 no. He 
was taken to a German concentration <laughs> camp. What are they doing in Japan? And it turns out, of course, he'd been to Japan, and Nagai had treated him or uh, x-rayed him for tuberculosis. <laughs> so they knew each other, but Nagai didn't know he had died three years earlier. Yeah. And I was just like, what a series of events. <laughs> And, of course, a miracle. And I love that Mary, Mother of God, is going, Maximilian needs this one. Come on. <laughs> ask him for prayers. Yep. <laughs> you know? Incredible. Yeah. 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 Well, um, and thinking of that, when he said, you know, Lord, I leave myself in your hands or whatever, I went ahead and got, there is a book that's out and affordable and um, easy to get which is his last nonfiction book or his last book for adults. I think there was one more book after this, maybe for his children. And it's called Thoughts from Neokoto. And um, mm-hmm. I, I want to read the very beginning. It's, it looks like it's just, I haven't had a chance to read much of it. It's a series of reflections or pieces that he wrote for articles or letters or whatever. And so it's a lot of, personal thoughts about things like I am dying to eat that pepper that's over in the neighbor's yard. And after all, I'm pretty sick. So shouldn't I be allowed to get the pepper? Um, But then I realized, no, 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 she actually grew the pepper. She probably could really use it too. And so, so it's showing you his inner thoughts and, um, and also some higher things though. And so what made me get the book though, was I read this sample on the Kindle and somehow it was just so perfect and inviting. So if you don't mind, I'd like to yes, read it. Yes, please. It's, it's called Invitation from Heaven. Mm. Just imagine if one fine day an invitation arrived that you had been waiting for for a very long time from someone whom you had been waiting to meet, a person with whom you have longed to stay, to spend a long time talking together. On the day that invitation arrived, how great would be your joy. Death is God's invitation. And it is with this joy in my heart that I await it. I know well how good and beautiful God is and how tenderly he takes care of me. For this reason, when I finally receive his invitation, I will be very happy to accept it. There are people who can't bear the thought of dying. It is because they do not know God. If they really knew how much he loves them, they would no longer be afraid and would let go of all resistance. Let it be clear, however, that if someone ever thought of taking his own life with his own hands, out of impatience to get to heaven, he would show up uninvited and would immediately be stopped at the entrance, so to speak, of the reception desk. (laughs) Through the glass of acceptance, he could glimpse the people inside heaven rejoicing in celebration, but he in no way would be allowed to enter. To remain outside of heaven is only darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. I believe that what we call hell is nothing more than this being far from God and suffering the penalty of the lack of his love. My perception of joy has changed profoundly. God's love has filled me with gifts of grace in every form, but I really think that the greatest grace awaiting me is this invitation to meet him face to face in heaven. The fact that he holds in store his greatest gift, death, until the last moment is precisely the loving gesture of a father. In fact, I think that as a parent, I too would do the same if I had something beautiful to give as a gift to my children. I would keep it hidden until the last moment to bring it out as a surprise when they least expect it. I could then enjoy the sudden amazement and joy painted on their faces. 
In the same way, God will rejoice when he sees my surprise when I accept death's invitation. Hmm. Wow. Love it. Yeah, it makes it so natural. Hmm. I mean, it really kind of re- to reframes the way you you should look at death. And we all kind of know this, but somehow the way he wrote about it, I was like, yeah, I'd like that invitation. <laughs> And of course, he carefully is like, but you can't, you can't go uninvited, you know. Yeah. You wait yeah. till the end mm-hmm. when it's right for you. But that's a lifetime of you know him exploring and searching for God and trying to draw closer, and then suffering through all this uh, years, several years of uh, radiation poisoning and only being able to write and all that kind of thing. So. I don't know. I just really liked it. Yeah, I really like it too. I think it's it's fantastic. Yeah, beautiful stuff. You know, and mm-hmm. yeah, he wrote so many things after he was bedridden. <laughs> that that was an amazing image as well. I know he never quit doing what he could. Yeah. So when all he could do was write, he would lie in bed and write. When he couldn't hold his hand. When he couldn't have any more strength, he changed to softer and softer pencil lead so he could still keep writing. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Would that I would have that determination. (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And and again, that internal optimism. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Just in the faith that he knew what was coming after. Right. Yeah. That he was good enough friends with God. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Just something else. So yeah, thank you for bringing this into my life. This is a this is a big one. This is going to need its own room. It is not just the <laughs> pool room. It's going to need another room that this is the only thing in it. <laughs> Maybe a little shack next to your house. That's right. Next to your pool room. There you go. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a it's a special book. <laughs> I'm glad um, you like it. I, mm-hmm. When I was rereading it, I was just loving it so much and I couldn't believe I hadn't reread it in so long. Yeah. So I'm glad you like it as much as I do. Yeah, very, very much. So is there anything else you'd like to say about it? Not me. What about okay. you? No, I mean What did we Yeah, miss? we nailed it. Nothing. I mean I I, I you know the, the Father Colby thing was amazing to me. Oh, that was astounding. Um, but yeah, there, there are so many things in this book um that really hit me. I I mean, even, you know, how much I talk about science and religion, and it is one of my, I don't know if you call it a pet peeve or whatever, but, you know, when Mm -hmm. people talk about how they're not compatible with each other, it just drives me insane. It's just like, come on, people. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just this this idea. And, and, uh, you know, he had the same view. Um, So, you know, I really feel akin to him. In, in a lot of ways, you know, partly because, you know, that I could be like him in a lot of ways. But a lot of the his way of thinking I see in myself, you know, when, especially, you know, because right. he, he talked about how, um, I, I think there was a sentence in there, I'm actually looking for it right now, but he, he said that, um, there it is. It says, you know, it annoyed him to no end to read that science and faith were opposed to each other. Right. And this was in page, you know, page 206. We're getting close to the end of the book. So, you know, he writes, if you read what the great scientists actually said, it is not so. 
social and literary critics, that is, men who have held pens but never test tubes, are the ones who make that claim. A little further on in the book, he added, one must approach the study of any part of God's creation with profound respect and a certain chastity. A real scientist experimenting in his laboratory is really at one with a monk in his cell. Yes, yes. experiments become prayers. You know, beautiful. You know? Yeah. Just, yeah. And it, it fits so much. It's just kind of a new way to say, or a deeper way to say what I've been saying. Um, oh, yeah. But I really, really just identify with this guy, you know? And that's why I don't understand why he's so little known, because he embodies so many things. He's overcome so many ideas and kind of melded them together the way you're talking about that are so prevalent right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, It's, uh, it's, he's really a man for our time. I mean, I think about people who can't find any meaning in suffering or illness or all this stuff. And he's, he's really, you know, he went through the ultimate and came out the other side going, okay, hold on. Let's think about it. God never does anything for no reason. This happened for a reason. Yep. Yeah, it's great. Yes. Wonderful, I'm so wonderful. So glad stuff. you liked it. Yeah, very, very much. So great. Well, we're going back to India next. <laughs> okay, this is kind of real, kind of a <laughs> tr- true story. <laughs> a true story. Well, That's fun. Kind of like um, <laughs> it's more true than watching a Robin Hood or King Arthur movie, uh-huh. but it's kind of like that, you oh, know. Oh man! So this is this is something new for you, Scott, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and I assume for most anybody listening. It is an Indian historical epic. So we watched epics like Bahubali. Yeah. But that was fantasy. This is for realsies <laughs> because we got done watching this movie and we looked up King Akbar the Great and went, no one could be like this guy. And we're reading Wikipedia going, oh my gosh, people are just like, oh yeah, he was for real. <laughs> oh my, oh gosh. my gosh. That's too so funny. The one th- yeah, the one thing I'll say is uh, this has two of the most beautiful people in the world, so everyone can enjoy something here. <laughs> but... um. It is one of those movies where it can be hard to keep track of who everybody is at the beginning because there are a lot of scenes with a lot of uh, like warriors getting ready to go off and they're all stating different points of view. Just kind of let it wash over you. By partway through the movie, it'll be more clear who's doing what and um, it doesn't matter that much. Okay. So Excellent. Um, Looks like yeah. it's available on Netflix. Okay, good. Yeah, just taking a look right now. Sorry, I was just going to pull out my DVD, but that's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, it is available on Netflix, confirmed. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have a vast Indian DVD collection. Oh, well, I'm sorry for you, but and mine isn't vast, but we're working on it. Oh, well, yeah, it's got to be, it's got to be vast. Oh Uh, my gosh, but this has got, this has got so many great things in it. You're just going to love it. I am looking forward to it. Yep. Yep. Well, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. All right. Okay. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. And we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. All right. Catch you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.